It was the year of our Lord, 2022, when I first witnessed a rational adult unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Honestly, I can't remember that question ever being sounded in my hearing in all of my life until just recently. Philosophers and social revolutionaries have written about these kinds of things for generations, but this befuddlement seems to be leaching into the mainstream of our national consciousness. Spend a few moments, just a few minutes on YouTube, and you can find formal and informal interviews where adults in full possession of their faculties have no answer to the question, what is a woman? It's too hot of a question to answer. From a Supreme Court nominee to your average college student, all manner of Americans are suddenly unable or unwilling to answer. And I think this seems to boil down into two camps. Uh, the choice on two different perspectives. The first camp views the question directly related to biology. That is, the answer hinges on one's body. The second camp insists that gender identity is unrelated to one's body. What a woman is hinges on psychology. That is, being a woman is something that I decide in my own spirit based on how I feel and determined by how I choose to identify myself. So two different tracks of thinking. And out of this second camp comes statements such as, I am not my body. Or, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. And similar notions. So for this camp, the question reduces to how I feel and to what I want. Not to the nature of my physical body. Now we should recognize that this dismissive view of the body is novel in one sense in our day, but in another sense it tracks down very ancient corridors. 400 years before Christ, the Greek philosopher Plato argued that the body was a prison of the soul. The great release, the great freedom to which we looked was death so that we could be delivered from the corruption that is the body. This philosophy was met head-on, as we would understand, by the Judeo-Christian reverence for the physical creation that God has made. The natural physical order is no evil to be shunned. Nature is a good gift from the Redeemer, and anything that's wrong with it, He's fixing Exhibit A, the resurrection of the body. And exhibit B, the new earth that is to come. But while Christians maintain that the body is no prison, we also hold that the person is more than a body. From a biblical perspective, we must answer what a woman is by looking externally to the body, but also internally. We want to do both. On the one hand, we cannot reduce the answer to simply how one feels or what one wants. But on the other hand, we cannot reduce the answer to a mere matter of sexual plumbing. 
the answer has both immaterial and material aspects. So what is a woman according to God's word? The answer to us as a congregation is obviously very simple, but I think that we need to deepen in our understanding of the foundations, and indeed just some of the texts that we discussed today are foundational for our discussion with others to be rightly grounded and understood. And so we return to the beginnings yet again. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we find first of all that she is a created being made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, created in God's image involves all of her capacities to image God. That is, to speak, to write, to long-term plan, the capacities to unlock the secrets of the universe, to exercise dominion and the like. But I, I believe creation in God's image also involves her calling to represent God, to live as His agent, as His agent to fill and to subdue the earth. So to bear God's image and to serve as God's image certifies that every woman is endowed with inherent worth, dignity, and purpose as a woman. Building off of this, these statements and these two verses, we add to it from chapter 1 here, looking at verse 27 specifically, that she is a female created in tandem with male. That could be put a number of ways, but looking at verse 27, we see here man is created, singular, him, created as male and female, plural, them. So God creates man as a binary creature, one essence, two genders, male and female. Every human being born in this world is born with a body that is either male or female to the very core of that baby's being. There is the external and the internal makeup. Now I realize in the rarest of cases, some babies' bodies are too deformed to determine a gender. But the rarity of asexual birth witnesses to the natural binary of male and female. Biologically speaking... God created every cell in Eve's female body with two X chromosomes and every cell in Adam's male body with an X and a Y chromosome. And to varying degrees, distinctive physical features and structures differentiate male and female. These physical differences are not socially constructed. They're not the result of brainwashing. They are natural, revealed in every society across the face of the earth and from the beginning of human history. Now, it's, we, we should be equipped to understand this word binary in that it has become part of the social conversation. There is a, there is a twofold aspect to man singular, male and female, them. So we see this even 
just in a a popular display such as this. Diffuse the tyranny of the gender binary. Destroy the gender binary. I don't see these t-shirts displayed everywhere, but you'd think on the internet that everybody's dying to get one. I think it's just a t-shirt company that's hoping to land on something and make some money out of it. But there is a thin minority that speaks very loudly in this day. The irony, to me, in looking at these two pictures is which one's a man and which one's a woman. I mean, our eyes are just trained to immediately know. There's no head here. There never was. I didn't cut the head off. This was the picture. But you know immediately which one's the man and which one's the woman. I realize there's all kinds of things we can do to mess with that, but I just found it sort of ironic. And the binary, and your eye immediately knows who's who here, even as they seek to downplay it. But in another vein, there is also an immaterial relational component in her femininity, which is why I use this word tandem. That might be familiar with us all, but here's uh, tandem axles on a truck, one following the other. In a similar sense, God created male and female, particularly husband and wife, to function in tandem. Adam is created first and given responsibility by God to secure a place and to lovingly lead and protect Eve. Eve is created to complete Adam. She is one with him. The axles are not of different quality. They are of the same worth, the same strength, but they work together as she follows him, as she is created second to complete him. There is an orientation that she has toward her husband that is not precisely the orientation that he has toward her. The Bible refers to Adam's relationship to Eve as one of headship. 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of a wife is her husband. In tandem, he comes before and sets the order. And the head of Christ is God. So there's no sense here, of course, of inferiority, as if Christ is inferior to God is one triune being together. Likewise, the man and woman have different roles but share the same essence. There's no inferiority implied whatsoever. But he is given to her to lead her, to work in tandem in front of her in a sense. And as Scripture unfolds that relationship, the emphasis falls not so much on how husbands and wives are different from one another, but how they are different for one another. In this tandem relationship, we move on in the book of Genesis to establish this idea that she is also a gift designed to complete her man. Verse 18, that particularly concerning Adam and Eve. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, was, while he slept, 
took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we must, of course, view this in broad societal terms. Not every woman is given by God to a specific man in marriage. And not every man will marry a wife, including our Savior. As with Jesus, as with the Apostle Paul, as with countless godly saints through the ages, some are called to marriage to God alone. And if this is God's will, it is His good will. That does not mean lifelong singleness is easy, nor is marriage in different ways easy. But let me stress here that if a female is not given in marriage to a man, she can find equal rest in God and a fuller joy in her calling as a single woman. So that's said and understood, back to the point at hand, Adam was incomplete by himself, verse 18. There's a malediction there. There's something that is wrong, and he recognizes this. God designs then Eve to complete Adam to become the place where he found relational rest and refuge. And I think we see a very beautiful portrait of it in the text that was read here this morning, Proverbs 31. She's a place of refuge to him. She's a place of rest to him. She is one who orders and arranges and beautifies and secures and presses him forward in their relationship together. And so I speak of it here in this third point as a gift. This gift to man is so life-enhancing, the Creator commissions him to leave father and mother in order to hold fast to his wife. It is the Creator's gift. And they are naked and unashamed. They revel in a relationship designed to produce children in the expression of sexual and relational pleasure. Which leads to the next point. What is a woman? She is a mother endowed with a child-bearing body. Now again, we speak in broad terms. Not all women marry, not all women bear children. But mothers have birthed 8 billion souls that are walking around on the earth right now. Let me insert here that God never deprives a woman of the blessing of bearing a child. He always opens up at the same time other avenues for her to serve in mother-type ways. In a multiplicity of contexts. And in some ways for that single woman in ways that are not possible for a mother. But living as the faithful bride of Christ... A single woman finds her joy in Jesus' headship while moving into the world as a mother type. Not mothering in the negative sense of everyone around, but mothering in the positive sense of many sorts of people. So to all women who are not mothers, I would encourage you to develop 
godly mothering implications as you relate to children and as you relate to others. You are a source of refuge. You are a source of rest. You are a source of beautification and support and strength to all that you relate to as Christ is your husband. My eyes saw that yesterday as women that were not mothers were relating here to children and to other men in motherly ways. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see. After a service here recently, don't get embarrassed, girls. You know who you are. I'm not going to say who you are. But there was a gaggle of little girls. I ran into their little conversation, and they were scheming of how to do babysitting in church context. <laughs> Amen. That's beautiful. I, I'm still waiting for a conversation like that among some boys. But um, it, it, they, they, they're thinking in motherly ways as little girls. That's good. I think it's a God-given gift. And I think it's something we should not be ashamed of, but exalt. Which leads to the next characteristic, that she is a mother endowed with childbearing body. As we now focus upon that point, we come to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 and verse 7. Notice here that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Down to verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And from that rib, the Lord God taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he says, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is woman, for she's taken out of man. Let's consider that now. Notice the physical aspect of God's creative design. You really can't miss it. God did not create an imaginary universe, like some fantasy novelist. It was from earth's soil that he formed the Hebrew word indicates that he physically molded Adam into existence like a potter molds a vessel from clay. In that way, he molds the body of Adam. Is not a man yet until God breathes into his nostrils the spirit, the breath of life. So body plus spirit is living being. Separate the body from the spirit and you have what? Death. So we have the physical and the immaterial aspect, and we must insist upon this in a truly biblical anthropology. God then takes flesh and bone from Adam's side, and he fashions Eve from that material, from that physical material. And when she appeared before Adam in all her glory, he probably pinched himself to make sure he wasn't dreaming. In verse 23, to put it into maybe our way of talking, he says, whoa, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam's saying, God, how did you do that? This is exactly what I needed. This is exactly what I wanted if I had only known what I should want. Thank you. 
at last gives the sense of relief, of rest, of finding refuge in a soulmate who, like him, is a living, breathing, physical being made from him in God's image and like him and yet so wonderfully different. And there is a sense here, then, I think, of physical beauty, of unfallen perfection given by God. We read in Proverbs of the vanity of beauty. That's not an absolute statement. There is a vanity that comes with physical beauty that is unhelpful. But here there is a physical beauty that is of God's creative design. And that physical beauty in that attraction leads to children. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 In the curse, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So God curses Adam with respect to keeping the ground in verse 17, but Eve's curse in childbearing reveals in a different light her leading role in God's commission to fill the earth. In verse 20 of chapter 3, in keeping with this, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Without her, no people. 1 Corinthians 11, 11, and 12. Without her, no people. She comes utterly essential in this equation. Without her, there's no Messiah to crush Satan's head. Genesis 3.15. Today, then, at conception, a woman is born with the biological potential to become a mother. Now, think of of an arrow on a bow that's pulled back on the string and aimed at a target. Like an arrow notched on the drawn bowstring, the arrow may never be released to strike the target of mother. Nonetheless, it is aimed from birth at the target of motherhood. Eve holds the primary role in the tandem effort to fill the earth with Adam as a mother. She's endowed with the awesome capacity to conceive, to nurture, to birth, and to feed a human being. You read, I've read leading feminists, I've read their, their words and you, can, you will take my word for it, but search it out and you'll find it to be the case. They speak, now they have for two generations, they speak as if a woman's capacity to bear a child is a hindrance, if not a curse. I believe Christians have an opportunity here. I believe there is a real straight window to the gospel as our light shines through that window to a lost and confused world. We may serve to help unsaved women who are uncertain about childbearing as we witness to the wonder and the joy of bringing a new human being into the world. What is the most awesome achievement of which a human being is capable? Entering space? Landing on the moon? Well, that's really not, I mean, it is an achievement of man. But when it comes to actually going to the moon, it's 
really technology. All sorts of people could be given that chance. I realize astronauts are awesomely skilled people, and it's really hard to get to the moon. I get that. But you could take a 95-year-old in a wheelchair with dementia, see him on a spaceship, and get him to the moon. So is the most awesome achievement to run a marathon, to land a triple axle in ice skates, to traverse the Antarctic, to climb Mount Everest? I honestly believe, brothers and sisters, accepting Jesus and the miraculous, the most awesome feat any human being will ever accomplish in this waking world is to conceive, nurture, and give birth to a human being. That is awesome. To bear a child is as close as a human being can get to the exercise of creational powers. And no man is ever going to get a piece of that action. Right? Even if he throws a temper tantrum and submits to being carved up by a surgeon, he's never going to get a piece of that action. Will scientists find a way to harness technology in such a manner as to simulate conception and birth on the part of a biological male? I, I don't know. You can go back to a book I know, I won't even get into it, but 1970, that was already calling for that. We've got to find a way to have men bear children. Others are saying that's not going to happen what we need to do is just end childbirth altogether. Not in the sense that it never happens, but it doesn't happen the way it happens now. I don't know what they all have planned and what it's all going to look like, but some of these ideas that we are now experiencing have been out there for a generation or two. So who knows? But if they find a way to simulate birth on the part of a biological male, the whole thing will prove so utterly manufactured and look so silly next to the real thing that it'll just be discarded, I think, before long. My point is this, I stress it at some length, but nothing matches the wonder of childbirth. And childbirth is the singular domain of, of women working in tandem with man. This leads to our next consideration, and that is she is a co-worker with a vital role in salvation history. We could expand this for weeks as with everything else that's preceded, but this last point is applicable only, of course, to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This only refers to those who are God's people. But think of this as we think of her equipped to bear children and the cause of salvation. Think of this in connection to the birth of Messiah. Chapter 3 and verse 15 of Genesis, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This prophecy of the one who would come to crush Satan's head, we find coming to fruition in the Gospels. If you'll work your way there to Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. Think of these, this amazing account, and we'll reflect upon it. Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And as Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she explained with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What was spoken to her from the Lord? This leaping joy at this child described earlier in the passage. Verse 26, the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Think, keep that phrase in, in view. Will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? I have not known a man in that way. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I don't think that was an unknowing statement. I think she knew in some sense what this meant. But let's work this out just from one theological angle. Theologians have argued that if Adam had sinned and Eve had not sinned, the human race would be plunged into sin with Adam. But if Eve had sinned and Adam had not sinned, the human race would not have fallen into sin. Why? Because Adam stood as the representative head of the human race, not Eve. Since the first Adam sinned, the second Adam, Jesus the Messiah, came to earth to rescue us from our sin. But our Savior could not be fathered by a sinner and by one as a sinner who was head of his home, pointing back to the head of the race. So only the sinless Spirit of God could generate life in the womb of a woman, which was necessary for Messiah to be a man. So she, though a sinner, 
was not the head of her husband. And so human and divine coming together in the only way possible. So in one sense, our redemption passed through the womb of Mary. It hinges on this reality. Apart from her role as mother of Jesus, we would not be saved. It's a hypothetical, but this is how it must be. And as that history of redemption unfolds, we see the vital role played by godly women who come alongside men as allies to complete, to fulfill, to give rest, and to carry forward the plan of redemption as women alone could. Now with Mary, we see this singular distinction. But this kind of idea continues to play itself out in redemptive history. Time fails us to speak further of Rahab, who cunningly hid the Israelite spies in Jericho and became a mother in Jesus' lineage. Time fails us to speak further of Ruth, the Moabite woman whose courage and industry and fidelity and ingenuity placed her in the lineage of Jesus. And time fails to speak further of Abigail who used her resourcefulness and diplomatically spared King David's future. David, who became the father of the type and the type of the antitype, his greater son, Jesus Christ. Time fails to speak further of Esther whose courage and winsomeness and beauty spared her nation and ultimately spared the life of Messiah. She had no idea what she was doing when she walked before that throne. Time fails to speak further of the women who traveled with Jesus, Mark 14, Luke 23, and of Mary Magdalene, the pinnacle of praise for Jesus on earth from this woman, and the first woman to bear witness, the first person to bear witness to the resurrection. And time fails to speak further of the women who labored alongside the Apostle Paul in the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, and the women through the centuries, who fulfilled their complementary role in the mission of the church as takes place among us day after day, week after week, year after year. God's cause and the spread of the gospel has always relied upon feminine refuge, energy, ingenuity, and courage to move that mission forward. And where the following axle in a tandem breaks, it's a wreck. They must work together. And God has always used this relationship to carry forward the gospel. I think I speak for most to say that deep in our bones as believers, we know the beauty of God's design. And it is our privilege to display and declare the beauty of that design in a day of such confusion. God help us do so. But what is a woman? She is an awesome creation of God. 
given as a gift to complete man and to work alongside him, to subdue the earth with a particularly high calling of bearing children and living as a mother or mother type in subduing the earth as citizen of God's kingdom. But as beautiful and treasured as this good design is to us, God's gracious provision nauseates many in our day. And it will nauseate more, I am certain. What I've described here in this brief time that we've had together is seen by an increasing number as an ideological construct that is intended to uphold the oppressive weapon of the nuclear family by which men retain their dominant role in society. That's all this is. Is men seeking to control, we are told. But let us understand, Christian, that irrational charge is a desperate cry for happiness. It is also the death rattle in the lungs of this dying culture. It is broken, and it is rebellion, and we live among it. But we must understand then, Christian, that this irrational charge as a cry for happiness is a desperate attempt to bring into one's life and into this society what Christ alone can bring. So we don't run from this message. We bring the gospel to it. This perspective that we face is a highway to pain. It is a highway to misery. It's a highway to self-destruction in a mad quest for an imagined happiness that will never come, or at least never come to stay, maybe individually for a moment of time, but it will accomplish nothing. And what I think might also be helpful for us to be prepared as we address those in this world is that it is technology that keeps the fantasy alive. In an effort to take the Creator's place, people are willing to embrace the irrational notion that sexual identity can be whatever we want it to be. I want to be my own Creator. And we have surgeons willing to slice up a man, ending all possibility that he will ever become a father. And surgeons willing to cut up a woman, assuring she will never know the joy of bearing or feeding a baby. Nor will she know the tandem love of a real man. They're ending this in order to get to the happiness they imagine. What's so interesting is that they are absolutely convinced that we must crush the system the happiness that they seek to achieve is left undefined. They cannot explain what that happiness will look like because you can't explain what doesn't exist. And then with the knife come the drugs 
prescribed that will assault bodies, very natures, and good health the rest of one's life. And all ironically, this desperation to destroy binary sexuality is forced to operate in male and female categories. It is so ironic. You cannot transition to something unless it exists. So end this, but let us transition to what we want to end. So boys supposedly transition to girls and girls to boys, which is a recognition that male and female is a thing. This is not going to suffice for long. This irrationality will not stand long. And the writings of radical social engineers are already calling for the utter elimination of male and female consistently, not inconsistently as things are now with the transgender issues, but calling for the utter elimination of male-female and the elimination then of childbirth through natural means. There is writing out there saying this is where we must go. Radical feminists are advocating, to be clear, the elimination of men from the equation. They've got to be there somehow as a place of harvest, but that's it. Keep them out of the equation entirely. That quest may go mainstream before long, and it may be the next issue that we meet after the transgender idea is let go and we quit experimenting on our children. The child of God, we have utterly nothing to fear and everything to gain. We have a message of liberation that declares to what may well become a growing array of devastated people that come to realize they've been duped and have lived as little more than lab rats to a sociological agenda that does not love them. We have the redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ to restore, to forgive, to transform. There's a place I think we can connect with transgender people. What they do rightly understand is I need to change. A radical transformation is necessary for happiness. And we say as believers in Christ, amen and amen. A transformation that is called the new birth. And may we leave then at peace that we are, all of us in our varying roles, the recipients of God's good and satisfying gifts and never question His Word. Let us ascribe all glory, laud, and honor to the Father of lights from whom every good gift descends. And that goodness includes male and female. By His grace. Let's pray together.